Well, good morning, MCC. Hope you guys are doing good today. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Trent. I have the honor of being the lead pastor here at McDonough, and we are so thrilled if today is your very first time that you would take some time out of your weekend to be here with us. Um, if you haven't gone out there yet, I'd love to send you out after the service is over to that connect table. Just a chance where um, you can meet some people, uh, answer uh, or get asked any questions that you have about MCC, and then uh, be able to actually kind of get a gift, kind of our way of saying welcome in and welcome home. And uh, I'd love for you to do that if you have not yet. So if you are brand new with us, today's your very first Sunday. We're actually in this series called Breakout. And what we're talking about in this series is how almost all of us, and probably everybody, we have things that are going on in our mind and our head. And those things, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety, whether it's shame, fear, rejection, whether it's a false identity, we have these things that are going on in our head. And a lot of times those are the things, not physical things, not physical change, but those are the things that keep us from experiencing the life that God created us to be able to experience. And our hope is that by the power of God's word and what he would do in your life, that breakout would happen. And you'd be able to experience life with less of a burden, less of those things holding you back. Last week we talked about how we all have a propensity to get tied up in a false identity. Maybe something that someone spoke of us as not being tough enough. Or, or somebody said, you, you, just, you don't have what it takes. Or somebody saying, hey, I, I don't think that you're going to make it here. Or we're trying to be someone who we're not, or we're trying to live up to the person down the road or in the cubicle next to us, and we just don't have it. And we talked about this identity that God has given us to, to not say, hey, you have to work for all of this. That God says, hey, you are my son. And by Christ, you have the opportunity to enter in to a living hope in this world where people hope in so many different things. I hope someone noticed me. I hope someone cares. I hope someone, I hope I can get this. I hope I can get that. Jesus says, every other hope is going to die on you, but I'm a living hope. Come to me. And today we're going to dive into his word, and we're going to talk about breaking out of something that we all struggle with, the level playing field in here, which is a fear of rejection. So if you would, I want to invite you to do something that, you know, we don't always do, but I want you to do today. One of the things that gets lost in coming to kind of a church like this that they still were able to have when they did house churches and they kind of all met was the power of collective prayer. When people would gather together and they would actually pray for the people who were around them. And here's what's sad about you as a Christian, is some of you have went all week and nobody has prayed for you. And I hate that. And I don't think that's how God ever intended it for, for it to be. And that's why I think church is so incredibly important. That's why I want to do this. Before we dive into where we're going today, I want to just take a second. And, and, and for you even, I think this is where you're as an individual, this is a great exercise even for you to take your mind off of you and to just look around for a second and pray for the people next to you, that they will be able to hear from God what they need to hear from God, that wounds that they have that have been caused to them in their life would be able to be healed, not by anything special that I would say, but by the power of God's word being manifest and made real in their life. And so if you would, I invite you, just in the quietness of your own chair, to pray for the people around you. If you know their name, mention them by name to their creator God. If you don't, God knows their name, just talk to them about them. And then I'll close this out. Let's pray.
Abba Father, I know what may sound like a whisper in this room is actually a roar in heaven. As your, your people are lifting up each other. God, it's a reminder of what we are here for. It's a reminder that, one, we have direct, direct access to you. That we don't need a priest, that we don't need somebody to intercede on our behalf. That we can quiet our minds and talk to the creator of the universe. That we can talk to one who laid down his very life, sacrificed it so that we could have life. I pray that encouragement would happen today. I, I pray, God, and I believe, and I, I claim by the power that is, is made manifest through the preaching of your word that breakout happens today. That fear dies today. That shame dies today. That those chains fall or broken and your people have cold hearts melted. Numb minds brought back to life. And a new life in you. Only in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I was a senior in high school. It was 2006 when I graduated high school. I'm sorry if that makes you feel old. So graduating high school, 2006, in, in Carrollton, Georgia, here, here in Georgia, and uh, we're sitting down at graduation. We've kind of gone through all the names and done all the other type of stuff. Now, I am not the kid at graduation who's like, I know I'm not up for valedictorian. I know I'm not even going to get one of those cool gold tassel things. I've got the tassel on my hat, but not around the neck. I'm not that, not that smart. Uh, no Spanish honor. I failed Spanish twice. Uh, no habla inglés either. Uh, <laughs> And so I'm not expecting really any, I'm, I'm like, give me the diploma, let me get out of here, and this, this chapter is closed, on to the next chapter. And I'm there at graduation, we've kind of gone through all the name calling and everything else, and that's happened. And then I'm sitting there and this woman gets up to present this award. And I'm not paying attention because again, no awards are coming my way. And Johnny Sheffield was the guy, we're in alphabetical order, Johnny Sheffield sitting next to me. And he goes, uh, dude, I'm pretty sure she's talking about you. And i perk my head up from whatever I was doing. I was counting my shoelaces or something. I mean, it's, our graduation was uh, not in a gymnasium. It was at a football stadium in the middle of summer. And so you feel like you're John the Baptist with like this burlap sack on and you got a tie on, clip on me. Yes, Lord. I didn't know how to tie one and nobody showed me how. So I'm there with my clip on and my burlap sack and a hat on that's purple and weird. And uh, he goes, dude, I'm pretty sure she just called your name. And by the time I can look up, I hear out loud, and the 2006 recipient of the Leadership Award for Central High School is Trent Schumick. And I go, oh, man, like, that's crazy. And John, Johnny goes, you need to go get that award, man. And, and, and I did, I, again, I wasn't paying no attention. And so um, I have to like get up and I walk in front of everybody. And like there's, this, there's like the stadium full, full of everybody who's there for graduation are, are clapping as I go and I get this award. And I come back and I, I'm still kind of flabbergasted about what's going on. I sit down in my chair and, and, and my mind goes one place. I went, that award was great. But is dad here? It was great to get an applause from all these people and hear all of their acceptance about how I guess I'm, I'm a leader of this class. 
But despite all of that acceptance, when I looked up and I couldn't find him and I gave my best hope that maybe he was just in the parking lot watching from somewhere else or or he was maybe running a little bit late. But then after graduation, you know, everybody kind of goes out on the football field and everybody's there with their families. And I had family in from New York and family in from Kansas. And then my dad who lived just kind of a little ways down the road wasn't there. Despite all the acceptance that I felt like I had gotten that day, that I wasn't expecting and I didn't really want, there was one rejection that rung the loudest because it was the one person who I wanted acceptance from. And see, rejection has this way in our lives of dulling and nullifying even our greatest accomplishments. Because if the right person rejects you, it can ruin your life. It can ruin your year. It can ruin a moment. And everybody in this room, regardless of what race you are, regardless of how much money you make, regardless of of what type of family you grew up in, what type of college you went to, what type of skill set you have, everybody in this room, the level playing field for us all is we all, at some point in our life, have experienced rejection. You want to know why rejection hurts? If you're taking notes, you can write this down. I'm going to let you into a little secret of why rejection hurts. It hurts for two reasons. It hurts because it makes us feel empty of worth and full of shame. That's why rejection hurts. See, because when I went back and sat down in the chair beside Johnny Sheffield, I thought how great it was that I just got this award. I didn't think I was worth getting this reward. But when I realized that the person who I only cared about accepting me for this reward wasn't there, it was rejection anymore. It was rejection because I felt worthless because the one person who I would even try to get an award for wasn't there. And see, that's what rejection does. It communicates you're not worth anything because what do you not do with something that is worth something? You don't reject it. You hold on to things that's worth. If I had $100 in my pocket, I'm not going to just reject it and throw it or rip it or burn it. It's worth something. And so for you, when you got denied that scholarship or entry into your first college of choice, you felt rejection because you said you felt, I'm not worth being a part of this student body. When you didn't make it onto the cheerleading team, it's, I'm not, you know, just uncoordinated. It's, I'm not worth being a part of this team. When you got let go from that job, it wasn't, ah, I just don't have the credentials. That's not what you felt. You felt, I'm not worth anything to this employer. When you got a divorce, the message wasn't, we're not compatible. The message was, you're no longer worth anything to me anymore. And I don't need the love that you could give. And that type of rejection, especially when the acceptance is what you long for, when you really are longing for someone's approval, longing for their acceptance, longing for their love, and they stiff arm you, that's when it stings. That's when it hurts. And there's some science behind the pain, believe it or not. See, in our brains, and scientists have figured this out, in our brains, when we feel physical pain, our brains release this chemical, these chemicals called opioids. Turn to your neighbor, say opioids. We're going to learn about drugs today at church. Drugs church, yay. So our brains release these things called opioids when we feel physical pain. So if you put your hand on a stove or you burn it, your brain's going to release these opioids to help dull the pain. 
And researchers at the University of Michigan School of Medicine, they wanted to do this study to find out whether or not the same type of opioids that are released in our mind when we experience physical pain, they wanted to see if those same opioids were released when we experienced emotional pain. And so they did this crazy study. They brought in a group of people and they brought them into this room and they gave them essentially a Facebook, not an online Facebook, but a book full of faces. And they said there was a hundred different faces in the book. And so they would give this book to one of the people in the class, they give them one to everybody. And out of the hundred faces, they were told to pick out of the hundred people who were in there who they felt attracted to and would like to ask out on a date and would like to go on a date with, okay? So this is what they do. And imagine yourself there in a room, you're just looking at a bunch of faces. I mean, it was, you know, Tinder before Tinder. It was crazy. And so they're, they're taking them through this experiment. And then what they did is they put a brain scanner on the people after they had gotten them to go through the, you know, basically picking out who they wanted to go on a date with. And then they proceeded to one by one tell the people that the people that they had selected that they would like to go on a date with had rejected them and did not want to go on a date with them. And what they found was that as soon as that rejection happened, their brains released the same opioids as if they had experienced physical pain. So to simplify this for you, what this means is rejection pain in your brain is the same as physical pain. Does that make sense? So when you experience rejection, there's a reason why, why you say it felt like a slap in the face. There's a reason why you feel sick to the stomach when you get rejected. It's because your brain is doing the same thing on the inside that it would be doing if you had just stubbed your toe or twisted your ankle. And this is why we fear rejection because we have felt the pain of rejection. And it's Scientists would argue that it's kind of hardwired into our DNA. They would say that evolution made us this way so that no one had to teach you or train you. Like if you're just out in the wild and you see a grizzly bear, you just know that's a grizzly bear. I hope I'm faster than the guy I'm hiking with and you run. That they would argue that that's just hardwired into us. And they would say that our fear of rejection through the evolutionary process is there because we were in tribes, and we were in people groups, and we were safer from woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers if we stuck together. But if we got rejected and we were ostracized from the tribe or from the herd, then we would be able to be more at a place where we'd be susceptible to danger. Now, science says that evolution hardwired that into our DNA. I believe the contrary. I believe that faith hardwired that into our DNA because I've read scripture and I, and I believe that God actually put that fear of rejection inside of us. And he did it when he created us. Because that's where, the, that's where God's word it says, says, in the beginning, God looked and he said, let us create man in our image. From the very beginning, God is not just one individual operating in isolation god has always been father son holy spirit and they say hey let's create man in our image and so hardwired into your dna is community and what this means is you are better together what this means is you are more susceptible and prone to being endangered in isolation and on your own and that's why we fear rejection and some of you, you've allowed this fear of rejection to be what's hold you back from so many things in life. 
Rejection, actually, like the word rejection, it means, it comes from a Latin word. It means to throw backwards. And see, that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. The rejection that you face in your life is the enemy's attempt to throw you backwards and to keep you out of what God has for you. Because there's somebody in this room, you haven't received a promotion, you're still single, you, 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 you're missing out on this dream, this calling that you, got, you know God has placed on your life because you fear being rejected. And so every time it's right on the cusp, whether it's up for a promotion or you see somebody who's really attractive or, or you feel like, man, I need to pursue this dream that I feel like God's placed in my heart, everything in you goes, don't do it. Do you remember what happened last time? Do you remember how dumb you felt when they said, uh, yeah, we're going a different direction? Or she said, yeah, I'm already dating somebody. And you knew she wasn't. Do you remember how bad you felt? And so because we fear those things, we just go, no, no, I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm just going to do my thing because I'm afraid of what would happen if I put myself out there. And Paul and Peter, they offer us a solution. And the solution isn't easy, but the solution is true. And I think there's some help for you wherever you're at on the spectrum. Today, I want to help you understand that when it comes to rejection, we respond in one of two ways. If you write notes, you can take this down. We respond either in shame or blame. When you get rejected, you, find, you respond either in shame or blame. You respond by shame of going, I deserve this. I am unworthy. I shouldn't be a part of this team. I shouldn't be a part of this. I don't deserve to have kids who accept me. I, I don't deserve to have a spouse who loves me and cares about I don't deserve to have that job. Or you go to blame and you go, how dare they cut my kid from this team? How, those idiots. Why, don't they know how much I could offer to this job? You blame everybody else. And what you do when you blame everybody else is what you want to get is revenge. And you say, I'm going to prove them wrong. And some of you are trying to prove ghosts wrong right now. Ghosts of parents who have been gone for years and you're trying to prove them wrong. But you can't because they're gone. So we either go one or two ways. But I love what Peter does. Is he speaking to a group of people here in this book of First Peter where we're going to dive into and he's helping them understand because they're facing rejection in the same way that we face rejection. They were facing it more on a physical front. We're facing it more on a mental front, but facing it nonetheless. He says, in this world, you're going to, you're going to bump into some people who just aren't on you. They're not buying what you're selling. They don't care about you. They're going to reject you. And he gives them some hope in this. The first verse I want to show you is actually back up in verse, or chapter 1. Peter is talking to these people, and again, he's trying to help them understand their identity in Christ as a chosen generation. And he says this. He says, you have been born again. So if you missed out on having good parents the first time around, you get another shot at it. You've been born again into a new family, the family of God. And he says, it was not of imperishable seed, one that would eventually die. Being born, regular birth, means you're eventually, this old body is going to fade away and die. So that's an imperishable seed. He says, you were born, again, not of an imperishable seed, but one that is imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Point he's making there. How were you born again? By the living and enduring word of God. So any of you, if you call yourself a born-again Christian, you're, you did not become a born-again Christian because you studied up and did the most research and you got it right. You did not become a born-again Christian because somebody prayed the right prayer and you raised your hand at the right time. You became born again through the imperishable seed of the word of God. So what that means, friends, is there's power in this. 
There's life-giving power in the word of God. He goes on from there. I love this next part. And he dives in uh, to chapter two. And so he's saying, okay, we've been born again. This is the seed, the word through which we were born. And then he makes this other connection. He says, therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. You've been born again. So uh, take all this stuff that used to be your old life and throw it to the garbage. And he says in verse two, I love this. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it may... Did you hear that? That was crazy. Over here, uh, at the, the exact time, it was like a baby was like, yes, milk, and baby language. <laughs> so some baby over there went, amen. It was beautiful. He says, like newborn babies crave spir- pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. He's trying to help these people who are facing rejection, facing suffering. He's helping them to understand how they've been born again and what God's word is in this born again process. He's saying God's word is both the seed that starts you being born again. This seed that is in God's word, this is what allowed you to be born again. But then he also mixes metaphors here. He says, while this is the seed that allowed the start to happen, this is also the milk that sustains your life. So you've been born, you're a newborn. The only thing that will keep you growing, keep your faith alive, keep you from dying off is being in the word. The milk of the word is what sustains you. I don't know how, when the last time you were around a newborn breastfeeding baby was. Uh, For me, it's been about, uh, I don't know, about a half, a year and a half-ish, kind of. But for that period of, of Titus's life when he was growing up and Ezra's life, man, this breast pump machine was the background sound of my life. It was just, I mean, you wake up in the morning. You're watching the Braves game. Come home at night after work. It was everything. But to the people that Peter is writing to right here, those did not exist. There was no formula. They wouldn't have been able to afford it either, like we are. There was none of that. And so even if you as the mother, you couldn't nurse your child, they would find, they would find somebody else who could do that. And the, 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 the point he's trying to make here is, is you have to be close to the source. You have to get it directly from there. And the point he's trying to make here is if the seed is what starts your faith, the thing that sustains your faith is the word of God. And so that has to be near to you, has to be close. I don't think it's any crazy, just wild analogy that even says it is, it is abreast. It is here. It is by your heart where this stays. There's power in that. And he goes on. He says, okay, you got this identity piece. You're figuring out who you are in Christ. Now let me understand how this operates, how this works itself out. And in verses one through three, he says, therefore, since you've been born again, since you're going to the word of God daily, therefore, rid yourself of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so you may buy it, grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Verse four, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, that is a thick verse, okay? You read that and you're like, there's a lot of big words in there. There's a lot of things that I don't really understand, a lot of metaphors. What I wanna do 
is I believe the power for you to break out of the fear of rejection and the shame that's came into your life because of the rejection you face, I believe the power to get out of that is bound up in this truth. And so I want to walk through you. I want to walk through this with you. Is that okay? Okay. We're going to go kind of word by word. All right. So I need you thinking caps on. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you through this. Starting out, he says this. You come to him. Who is him? Jesus. Coming to Jesus. Okay. Come to Jesus. We're going to have to come to Jesus meeting today. As you come to him, the living stone. All right. So Peter is calling Jesus the living stone. A few verses earlier in chapter one, the common theme that he was saying Jesus was, was the living hope. He's coming to him now and calling him the living stone. He's making this emphasis that Jesus is alive. That was a great place. Yes. Amen. Jesus is alive. He's reiterating to these people who are going through circumstances that feel like it's going to kill them. Jesus is alive. He's a living stone. And that's an oxymoron in and of itself, a living stone. Like stone's like the deadest thing you could come upon. He's saying, no, no, he is a living stone. But, and that's where God does with what man is impossible, he does and makes it possible. And then he says he was rejected by humans. He was rejected by humans, which proves to us that God doesn't pick the way we pick. And here's the other side of this side about rejected by human. A lot of times we can read this and go, doggone it, those people should have never rejected Jesus. Shouldn't they have been able to tell by his ultra perm and how nice he walked down the streets and how many people he healed that like Jesus was a good guy? How dare they reject him? Newsflash, friend, you are a human. You rejected him too. I rejected him too. We rejected him. And, And we do it on a daily basis. But he says this is who he was. He was rejected by humans, but I love the next part. He was chosen by God, which proves to me that way more important than who rejected you is who chose you. Amen. Amen. And the reality is way before you or I or any Pharisee, scribe or Sadducee had the chance to reject Jesus, the Father had already chosen him. And listen, way before any employer, way before any ex-husband or ex-wife, way before any college way before any person at school, any coach, way before anybody ever rejected you, your heavenly father chose you. He chose you. And what I need you to know is that he was chosen by God, but he wasn't just chosen like, hey, I I want that one. It doesn't stop there. It gets even better. He says it was precious. He chose it. And it's this living stone. It's not just like any other stone. This is a precious stone. This is diamonds. And diamonds only get created by what? Pressure. Jesus was able to go under the most amount of pressure to create the finest form of preciousness. Precious is defined as being of great value, not to be wasted and not to be treated carelessly. And then the crazy thing about this, he goes from here to say, like you. He says, this is who Jesus is. And he says, you also. It's not like this is just Jesus. But he circles back to you and me. He says, you also are living stones. When that is mind-blowing. Because everything that I just described about Jesus is now true of you. That you 
are going to be rejected by humans. Now, at first we're like, oh, I don't want to be rejected by humans. Here's the deal. Here's, here's a couple of quotes that I think can help you in understanding that, man, it's going to be okay. We're going to get rejected by humans. It's going to happen. It's not going to necessarily take the pain away, but it's going to give you hope to know that your Savior, Jesus Christ, experienced that very same pain, and he is with you in the midst of it. Two quotes I love. They have helped me deal with, one, a fear of rejection, and then, two, the shame that has already happened from the rejections that I've faced before in my life. First one is this first quote by uh, William Baker. Rejection is much easier to cope with when you remember that the greatest person who ever lived was also rejected. I I don't know, but it gives me some hope to go, listen, I'm not the greatest person ever lived. Sometimes I pretend like I am, but I'm not. If they rejected the greatest person who ever lived, the person who I'm saying I'm giving my life to follow, then who am I to be foolish and prideful enough to think that I'm not going to face rejection at some point in my life? Who am I to play it safe in my faith and be afraid of what anybody else would think about me or say about me if I am a little bit more bold with my faith, if I'm a little more audacious with my faith, who am I to think that I will be able to escape this life of following Christ and not experience some rejection? The next one I love, and if you're a young person, man, the sooner you can get this in your heart, the better it will be. If you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. If you live for people's acceptance, you will die from people's rejection. We see this happen all over the place. We see this happen all over the time. There's a gas station, or a oil change station. I don't know what you call those. I drive by it almost every day. It says, the world is dying for love, but living for likes. And I go, that's very true. And that's why I would ask you the question is, is who's, acceptance are you living for right now like where you're at like who do you want to notice you the most who do you want to see the hard work you're putting in who who is it is it jesus or is it someone else who is it peter goes on and he says that you are chosen In the same way that God chose Christ, he chose you. He says from there, you are of great value because you are precious. And and, and here's what I want you to know. You are of great value to God. I know that in the rejection that you face maybe in this life, it has made you feel like you're worthless. And maybe you've been told that you are worthless. But friend, you're not. God looks at you and he says, you're precious and I'm choosing you. And I'm not choosing you like some white elephant gift where like I had to, it was my turn, so I had to choose somebody. He said, no, I, I'm choosing you and I know what's under the wrapping paper. I know what's all there and I'm picking it anyway because I'm less concerned with what's under the wrapping paper. I'm more concerned with what's in the heart and the fact that that person, you, were creating God's image and he has, your DNA, is, his DNA is inside of you. So he said, I'm gonna pick you because you're mine. He says, you're a holy priesthood, which is crazy to think about. That means we don't need a priest anymore. Like if we're being built together into this spiritual house, we don't need someone to intercede on our behalf anymore. Jesus is alive and inside of us. And when he says we're a spiritual house, what that means is we're a family. And hear me, in in an age of rugged individualism, where it's all about you, it's all about me, it's me becoming an influencer, me becoming a guy who's raising up my platform, me becoming the person at the corner office, me getting a, you know, a blue check mark by my name. In a world where everybody's seeking to get verified, what Jesus comes and he says, 
you will never be able to experience significance in this life outside of the body of Christ. And that's, that's mind-blowing to a culture that says, it's, I'm, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstrap. I'm going to make myself something. I'm going to do this all. I'm going to be the one who at graduation has just all this gold all up in it, and I get to do the extra graduation where I get a hat that's not flat anymore. I get one that's puffy. I'm going to do all those things. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you want to experience what true significance is, you've got to understand that you are not a brick on yourself. You're not a brick who's just okay with being out in the field. I can't stand it when people come and they say, man, I love Jesus, but I can't stand church. That's like somebody come up to me and said, Trent, I love you. I hate your wife. Can't stand her. And somebody says that about Jessica Shoemaker, that is offensive to me. And when we say, I, I, I love Jesus, I don't like his church, that's offensive to him. Because he died for that church. He called that church his bride. And, and, and he needs that church to, to cooperate together. And he needs even the stones that are out there saying, hey, I'm on my own and I don't want to be a part of this to come and find their way in. And this is where I'll just pause for a second and apologize. Man, I've been, in, I've been in church, like doing church ministry since I was 18 years old. And friend, I know church hurt is real. And I apologize for those of you who've been hurt by the church. I apologize for those of you who have felt rejection from the church. I want you to know that the rejection that you face is, it was never from Christ. That you have a place and you have a spot where you can belong here. And, and we're broken. We don't have it all figured out. But man, we hope that we can be better together than we could ever be set apart. And I hope, man, it definitely in this world of rugged individual, that this eases your like stress and anxiety a little bit to go, you know what? I don't have to win an award. I, I don't have to prove myself. My gr- the greatest glory in your life well, bec- and this is, man, this is a huge shift to go, the greatest glory of my life will be based off more of what I am a part of than what I do on my own. And that's, what, that's Jesus' thing all along. He said, man, if you people, my people, called by my name, will understand you're part of my family and there's greater in glory not being my favorite son. He has, God only has one favorite son. He only has one favorite kid. And there's nothing you to do, could do to trump Jesus to, get the, to shake his spot out of the chosen kid. But you're as close as being God's favorite as you ever could be. And he says, I wish you would come in into my family and understand that you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to get this notification. You don't have to get them to recognize you. Uh, the greatest thing you could ever do will actually be something that you will only find here in my body and that's why the body of Christ is so critical and so crucial the last thing we'll dive into is what he says in 2.6 it says for in scripture it says and that scripture he's talking about he's quoting here Peter's quoting is Isaiah 28.16 see I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone one and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame As the band comes back up, I want to help you understand this promise that's being made here when he says, you will never be put to shame. I think some of you hear that and you go, man, you you mean to tell me that if I put my trust in Jesus from, from this moment forward, I will never be put to shame? Like, what do you mean by that? Here's what this means. On the cross, Jesus took on all of your sin, 
every single bit of your sin, the sins you're gonna commit tomorrow, the sins you committed yesterday and you didn't know you committed, all of his sin of every single person from eternity past to eternity future was on him in the moment on the cross. Now here's what comes with sin, shame. Because there's guilt in the sin. The reality about Jesus is though, he was not guilty of sin. But everything that is, the things that come with sin and shame was on him in that moment. That's why Paul wrote about it and he said that he became sin who knew no sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. So what this means is the shame that would say, I am something bad, was all on Jesus. And so the reality, and this is, this is mind-boggling to think about, the reality is shame is not there anymore. The shame that could look at where God could look at you and go, you are something bad, does not exist. Because all of that was placed on Jesus. And so God looked at him and saw all of your shame, all of your shame so that no, now longer, from every point forward, he would never be able to look at you and go, you are so bad. From every moment forward, God looks at you and goes, you are so loved. You are so priceless. And I let my son be treated like he was worthless so that you could get in your head that you are priceless to me. And I'm gonna give my son to you so that you can put faith in him. And that's what he invites us into. To say, this is what it means to be a part of this family of God. This is what it means to trust in him and never be put to shame. So the the question I, I leave you with today it, you're, you're a stone. It, there's no way you can get around that. But you get to choose which one you want to be. Will you be a stone on your own? Doing your own thing? Your own way? Or will you say, I choose to be a stone with a home. I choose to be a part of a collective unit that is better than anything I could ever conjure up or make up on my own. That's right. He says, Jesus, he says, Jesus is the cornerstone and I'm inviting you to be a part of the house that he is building. He's inviting you to come into that, to come out of shame. I'm praying that that breakthrough happens today. As we get ready to sing this song, the song is actually called Cornerstone. And that cornerstone is Christ alone and that it's in that cornerstone of Christ that the weak can be made strong, that you can be made whole again. And I invite you, if you have never experienced who Christ really is, the verse makes it really clear that he will either be a cornerstone to you or he will be a stumbling stone to you. And he becomes a stumbling stone to those who reject him and say, you know what, I'd rather try to build something on my own. But hear me, friends, the best kingdom you'll ever build on your own is a sandcastle. And the ways of this life will wash it away. I've watched it happen. And so I ask you today, would you take the invitation to come part of a living house, a living stone, and take that invitation to be who God created you to be? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and thank you. We thank you for your word, how it's made evident in our lives, how its truths speak deep into our hearts and reveal to us the things that only we could see by seeing it through your word, through your lens, through your perspective pray today that your friends got to a place where they saw you for who you are, Jesus. One who took their shame, who took their rejection, 
and who way before some boy, some ex-husband, some boss, or some admissions counselor rejected them, you accepted them. You called them chosen. You called them precious because the precious blood of your son Jesus covered them, washed them, and made them new. In your name.